you know a spot. But not just a spot. The spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Moments like seeing my son's team cheer him on mean a lot to me. But after being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer or MBC, which is breast cancer that has spread to other parts of the body, they mean even more. I take Ibrance, Palbociclib. Ibrance 125 milligram tablets with an aromatase inhibitor is for adults with HR positive HER2 negative NBC as the first hormonal based therapy. Ask your doctor about Ibrance and visit Ibrance.com. Ibrance may cause low white blood cell counts that may lead to serious infections. Ibrance may cause severe inflammation of the lungs. Both of these can lead to death. Tell your doctor right away if you have new or worsening symptoms, including trouble breathing, shortness of breath, cough, or chest pain. Before taking Ibrance, tell your doctor if you have fever, chills, or other signs of infection, liver or kidney problems, are or plan to become pregnant, or are breastfeeding. Common side effects include low red blood cell and low platelet counts, infections, tiredness, nausea, sore mouth, abnormalities in liver blood tests, diarrhea, hair thinning or loss, vomiting, rash, and loss of appetite. I'm Erica Alexander. And I'm Whitney Dow. Welcome to Reparations, The Big Payback, a production of Color Farm Media, iHeartRadio, and the Black Effect Podcast Network. The world has changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I taste it in the pot liquor. Much that once seemed impossible suddenly is, and much that once seemed immutable, unchangeable, suddenly is not. If you listen, you can hear a river rolling. If you listen, you can hear a river roaring. Justice is a river. You may try to dam it, try to stop its onward course, but it will go where it will, and woe to those who stand in its way shouting, go back. This is a story of that river. It began with a simple promise, a radical one, first proposed at the close of the Civil War by a committee of black ministers to Sherman, great conqueror of the South, to give formerly enslaved black people 40 acres of land in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, 40 acres of land apiece as recompense for generations of forced, unpaid labor and cruelty, for the separations of families, for the barbarism of 250 years and more. There would be land. Later, there was even talk of mules. Sherman kept his promise, and under his special field order 15 in the first concrete act of reparations for slavery in this country, as many as 40,000 freedmen were resettled on former slave owner land. 
the American government under Lincoln was recognizing the unique suffering of enslaved black people and watering the soil of a suffering nation within a nation with justice, with practical, physical amends. But it was not to be. Under Lincoln's Southern sympathizer successor, Johnson, the dark forces pushed back. The land was taken from the freedmen and given back to the very slavers who had kept them in bondage. The river was dammed. The great battle for reparations for slavery was thwarted, set aside, postponed for a generation and more. In the next century, the call to battle to repay the children and grandchildren of slavery was taken up by bold women warriors like Callie House, who sued the U.S. government itself, and by a lonely warrior queen, Queen Mother Moore. They watered the soil of justice with sweat and tears. Still, in its bottomless cruelty, the power of white supremacy would hear nothing of it, insisted there had been no real harm, and even if there had been, It was all buried in the unreachable mists of time. And what could be done? Nothing could be done. The river, white supremacy said, was fine, just as it was. But like the rain, the call for reparative, restorative justice, the pain-drenched heart's cry from the soul of America for reparations, was never truly silenced. New fighters picked up the banner in the rushing rivulets of the streets, in those mighty fountains of black power, the pulpits, in the swift-moving streams of the local governments, and in the thunderous cataract of Congress itself, until the sons and daughters of the bondsmen could finally hear the unmistakable sound of justice coming, justice coming home, justice roaring, roaring like a river to the sea. It's not home yet, now even now. There are those who stand in its awesome path, who shout, go back. Will they stop this mighty river? Wow, Erica. Well, we're finally here. We're almost home. Can you believe it? This certainly has been quite a journey. (laughs) Yeah, it has. It's amazing. Looking back to think of the places we've gone, the people we met, the different voices we've heard. I think it's changed us both, don't you? Absolutely. And in the time we've been talking, America's racial reckoning? Reckoning or deflection of racial reckoning or failure to have a racial reckoning. Right. In this past, what is it, five months? That felt like a year from the insurrection at the Capitol, which was about white supremacy, to the trial and verdict on Derek Chauvin. Which was also about white supremacy. Or more to the point, perhaps about the death of the white majority and the reassertion of supremacist tactics and terrorism. Brother, yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm glad we went on this journey in the midst of these momentous times. You go, go ahead, try that, Whitney. Say it five times. Say it fast five times. (laughs) I can barely say it one time. But listen, I hope the folks who came along with us Got something out of it, as we did. Well, one more thing, Erica, before we begin. Listening to your introductory piece here, I'm going to need a little more info about uh, pot liquor. What am I, like, black Google or something? (laughs) Besides, Whitney, I've gotten your family holiday gifts. Yes, you have. You know plenty about pot liquor. (laughs) I do. (laughs) Hello to the Dow family. But in this case, to get a little taste of my brew, 
All you need is a little imagination. Here we go. Ah, there's that word, imagination. Now, Erica, I know I teased you initially when you suggested we recreate Willy Wonka's magical feeling in a world of reparations. But, you know, I got to admit, you stuck to your guns. And in the end, that seed of inspiration gave us this big, colorful field to play in. Mm-hmm. So are you trying to say, thank you, Erica? Wow, that was a great idea. Oh, you know, I'm really sorry about laughing at you and not believing in your mind-blowing genius. Next time, I'll just get out of your way, lay down the red carpet and- Well, you know I don't like anyone putting words in my mouth, Erica, but in this case- <laughs> You're welcome, Whitney. It's just another day in the life for a creative genius like me, who also <laughs> writes dialogue by the pound and can trick you into saying anything I want. Wait, what? Anyway, yeah, we were fortunate to meet some terrific people. Warriors who are shining lights in the battle for reparations. And every journey needs its fellowship, its front line, middle, and rear guard. That's right. For me, Alderwoman Robin Ruth Simmons really stands out. You know, the idea that a local level, in her case in Evansville, Illinois, that she could push hard enough to actually make her community face the issue of reparations without waiting for it to be a national policy or something like that. I think that it's really kind of revolutionary. Definitely. But addressing the need for national policy and carrying on the legacy of the great Congressman John Conyers, we had the great Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas to join us to talk about H.R. 40, the historic and long overdue resolution before Congress to form a commission to study reparations. Slavery is the original sin. Slavery has never received an apology. The number of Africans who died in the Middle Passage, over 2 million. Number of enslaved who died during slavery, first, second, and third generation, over 2.5 million. Who has a history like that? Reparations should be welcomed by all Americans, for we are not asking one American to give one payment. What we're saying is it's the only way that slavery ended was a governmental action of the 13th Amendment, governmental action. And Reconstruction failed after 12 years because it was imploded by governmental people. And after Reconstruction, a reign of terror that had never been seen, the hanging fruit, the lynching, the oppression of voting, the tearing away of land, and the amazing concept of the continuing de jure and de facto impact of slavery today. Mega businessmen Bob Johnson and economists Julianne Malveaux and William Darity broke down for us just how much reparations will cost. Hint, it'll be a whole lot. The debt that's associated with a reparations claim for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery is in the vicinity of 10 to $12 trillion. And that's an estimate by examining the magnitude of the difference in wealth that is held by Black Americans who find their origins in the community of individuals who were subjected to enslavement. We set as the target for a reparations plan, elimination of that gap and bringing the Black share of wealth into consistency with the Black share of the nation's population. Wow, how are we going to pay for all our bombers and cyber warfare? Uh, with a bake sale? <laughs> I guess I better get started on those cupcakes. <laughs> I didn't know you could bake, Whitney. Oh, yeah. Okay, you do that. In the meantime, 
I'll get a vegan recipe from a friend we, no, well, I talk to, who can really cook, slice it, and serve it hot, the Reverend Al Sharpton. He explained why white supremacy is in a battle to control the narrative around reparations. Yeah, I wasn't really aware we were going to be hearing from the Rev until after you kind of slipped him in there, Erica. You know, that was kind of pretty sneaky. Well, I learned it from the best whitey. I mean, Whitney. Haha. <laughs> they take ownership. And some of it is subliminal, but it's there. That they are more qualified to tell us our story and others our story than we are ourselves. I was reading this book on Frederick Douglass and how when Frederick Douglass was a runaway slave, worked his way from New York to New England, and there was buzz around the uh, abolitionist world about this well-built slave that could read and uh, that we could use him to go out there and push our cause. And the white New Englanders who were leading the abolitionist movement brought him in and they started bringing him around to various gatherings. And then he started speaking and they were like, no, 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 we don't need you to talk. We just need you to be there, be the slave. We'll do the talking. It's like, we are really not saying you're equal. We sympathize with y'all, but let us do the talking. Let us write out the screenplay. Let us tell the black experience rather than allowing us as equals to say, wait a minute, this is our journey. And we know our journey better than anybody. And that is a form of white supremacy. I run into it even in my civil rights political work where progressives feel that they can tell blacks how we deal with our suffering more than we can tell ourselves. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have allies. I'm not saying we can't work with people. But you can't take ownership of me and you. Uh. We can no longer allow ourselves to be interpreted by those that do not understand us. And that's why I think that we've got to start with our authenticity. If I've got to be somebody else for you to accept me, then I'm bowing to white supremacy. God made me. You don't have to remake me. I was fine the way he made me. Just get out of my way. Get your knee off my neck. <laughs> we also got a solid definition of reparations from your pal, the RZA, or should I say, your son, Bobby Diggs. You know, you guys are a whole American saga unto yourselves. Oh, Lord, Wu-Tang! Okay, that was a shameless plug for your series, Wu-Tang, an American saga. Is there going to be a second season, by the way, Erica? Yes, Whitney, thank you for the subtle product placement. Yo, I was thrilled the RZA could join us. Reparations. What is it? It is the making of amends for a wrong that one has done by paying money to or otherwise helping those who have been wronged. It comes from two words, repair and action. So thus, it is the action of repairing the damage that one has caused. It is a noun, and we need it now. He laid it down. Yeah, and we got a quick education in white privilege from Joy Reid. That was a fun game. And Yvette Carnell, a truly gifted advocate for a very specific definition of reparations. She broke it down and showed us how we'd have to discuss who gets it. Name me one other group that has been oppressed from slavery and then has had the entire government, local and federal, mechanized against them. No other group can claim that. Now, some other groups can claim during this period we got discriminated against. During this period, some of our people got hung or lynched. But you do not have a history that stretches from 1619 to 2021. You don't have that. 
Melanin doesn't make us the same in terms of our contributions to America. And it doesn't mean that you should get reparations the same as me. American descendants of slavery came here in slave ships. Every other group came here either on foot or on a plane. You came here voluntary. Voluntary versus involuntary has consequences in terms of reparations. Now, do you have one parent who comes from American chattel slavery? And I'm going to tell you how to best figure that out. If you have a great-grandparent who was a sharecropper or whatever, you come from slaves. That's just what it is. It's not hard to figure out. We have records. But if you're a Black immigrant or if you come from Black immigrants, no, you don't get reparations. This is a specific justice claim. It's sacred. Now, in terms of the people that come from the Caribbean and Black immigrants and their children, because we have children of Black immigrants who are not Black immigrants, they're Black Americans. What we have for them are protections in a Black agenda because they have a lived experience of discrimination. They don't have the inheritance, the plunder. They don't have ancestors who came in slave ships, but they have an experience in this country which is racialized. So the Black agenda helps protect them as well as us against this racialized kind of discrimination. So that is there for them. The reparations piece, though, is just for us. That really set off the hotline we set up for people to call if they wanted to find out if they qualify. You know it's still going. LeBron James, Elizabeth Warren, J. Edgar Hoover, Carol Channing, The Jackson Five, Steven Tyler, Vin Diesel, Mitch Landrew, Rachel Dolezal, Michael Jackson Off the Wall, Michael Jackson Thriller, Michael Jackson Invincible, Darth Vader, Liv Tyler, Stacy Dash, Come On Girl Again. Carol Channing, Steven Tyler from Aerosmith is part black? Mm, I guess partially. So dude doesn't just look like a lady, he looked like a black lady. <laughs> Bam. Boom. <laughs> Steven Tyler. We also got a fascinating lesson in the slavery-based origins of tipping from Saru Jayaraman. As we say in New York, who knew? There is now mountains of evidence that tipping is not correlated with the quality of the service. Tipping is a reflection of all of America's biases from the inception of America. And what it is correlated with is the race and gender of the server, her eye color, her skin color, her hair color, her hair texture, her breast size, whether she's willing to touch the customer or be touched. And so that segregation of workers of color into back of house versus front of house, which is eerily reminiscent of the way in which slaves on plantations or even in reconstruction, people of color were treated and differentiated. And then on top of that, the differential in the way people are tipped, all of that results in a $5 per hour wage gap between black women and white men in our industry. That differential creates generational poverty. The subminimum wage exacerbates the inequality and it forces all of these folks to live off of tips. The fact that people of color earn less in tips, even when they have the same positions, it is a reflection of still deep-seated racism in the United States. Even when workers of color make it to higher paid positions, they cannot earn the same in tips because of this racism. Erica, we've really had an amazing opportunity to speak and learn from some really, really heavy hitters. You know, I'm thinking now of your friend, Reverend William Barber. He is my dear friend. Ooh, we lucky me. I love me some Bishop Barber. 
And yeah, he really is the preeminent clergy voice of this century. Bishop is carrying the mantle of Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign. He calls the period we're living through now the Third Reconstruction. He came with that moral authority of his, you know, that oomph. And he gave us fair warning about the price America will pay if it ignores the bill that's due. Justice. Just justice. Just justice. Established justice. That's all it is. And we ought to let it roll down like waters. And we ought to let it come down like a mighty stream. And until such time, we better remember what Dr. King said. Same thing Amos said six centuries earlier. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Woe to those who are at ease in America. And then Dr. King said it like this, 24 hours before he was killed. He said, we got to give ourselves to this movement. It might cost us, but we got to give ourselves to this movement because we either go up together or we go down together. And nothing would be more tragic than for us to stop at this point. Another heavy hitter who brought his A-game, astonishing genius, passion, and serious commitment for the fight was Killer Mike, even if his message was not a pretty one. Yeah, his message was disturbing. It was disturbing because it was true. I think we called it the ugly truth, you know, a concept that racism is a big business and that business may be too big to fail. Mm-hmm. The ugly truth is racism has been extremely profitable for America. We have a problem in this country in that we like to use cheap labor to create wealth on the other side. And the community that has been used for cheap labor the most are black people. I believe that as a country, we can be the country we aspire to be, where there's liberty and justice for all. But we can no longer do this if we are married to the classic capitalistic system in which we use and abuse a people that were brought here for free or cheap labor, just like we do migrant workers now, just like we've done Africans in the past, just like they did the Chinese during the making of railroads, just like they've done even the Irish and the Latino population that came into New York through Ellis Islands in the 20s, 30s, and after. This country knows that a different way is possible. The question is, are we too lazy and apathetic to try a different way? It is easy to target black and not only black, but the poor. Racism is an advent of classism. Classism is an advent of the bourgeoisie and the elite meant to oppress the peasant class. If we don't start to fight racism right now in this country, then we will forever remain an empire that uses the free labor of black people to exploit and capitalize off of. We have an opportunity in this moment to give people what we truly promise as freedom and justice for all. That means we must fight, fight, fight every step of the way against racism. And it's not enough to be non-racist. You must be vehemently anti-racist. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. 
Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Ooh, Killer Mike is the man. Ooh, that brother. I would vote for him. I would roll with him if he allowed me to roll with him. (laughs) But, you know, I'm really excited because we got to speak to so many different types of people. And it's not every day that you get to speak to a billionaire former presidential candidate. Uh Uh-uh. But that's exactly who we got with Tom Steyer. Yeah, he rolled the money ball to expose the financial barriers that continue to limit the economic growth of black Americans. Cat Taylor and I started a bank 15 years ago partially to redress the systemic racism in the financial system and the banking system of the United States. It specifically addressed economic justice, environmental sustainability, and supported businesses owned by women and people of color because there was systemic attempt to shut those people out of ownership of wealth in this country. And that's what redlining was. Don't lend to black people. It's against the rules of our bank to lend to blank people. So we're going to draw a red line around African-American neighborhoods, and you can't lend in there, which shut Black people out of home ownership, which is the basic wealth creation historically for American citizens. And so we started a bank from scratch. Basically, we measure every loan, not just on whether it's profitable, because we need to be profitable so we can continue in business, but also what is the impact on the community in terms of job creations, in terms of who owns the bank, in terms of sequestering carbon. And if you can't do that, then that's not a loan for us. Actions have to be taken, not just to be fair within the bank, but to redress the longtime deep racism of the banking system. And, you know, not trying to be fair, but to be specifically pointing out the people who've been discriminated against and trying to give them the opportunities that have been systemically taken away from them. The mayor of Flint, Michigan, Karen Weaver, joined us to tell us about the dark water story of her city. When you look at what really happened, it was about a group of people making money and getting rich because off of the water supply and having taken our pipe from us because we sold water to all of the surrounding cities in our county. And they changed our water source and they put us on the Flint River of all things. I mean, growing up, you know, we all knew you don't want water from the Flint River. You find cars, you find bodies, you find all kinds of things in there. And uh, as they made that switch, they didn't test our water. How do you switch a water source for a city and not test it. And when people complained about it and said something was wrong, we were told the water was fine. But think about this. It corroded the parts for the GM cars and GM got off of our water, but corrosion control was never added to the water. So we're drinking this water that we're told is okay for eight, months. We complained. We held up bags of hair, skin rashes, those kinds of things. And um, our water source had been switched 
And you know it had to be a cover-up because how do you keep that quiet for 18 months <laughs> from the rest of the world when mm-hmm. we're here in Flint, you know, yelling and screaming and crying? And I got my water tested while I was campaigning. And I got the call from Virginia Tech saying on a Sunday night, and they said, your water is tested high for lead. And they told us not to even use it to brush our teeth. But they had never planned on telling us and sharing this information. Because one of the things we found out was the state knew and they were having bottled water sent to their state buildings here while the people continued to drink this poisoned water. And at that point, it was more than lead because we had bacteria in there. There was E. coli in there. There was all kind of mess in our water. Yet nobody thought to say, let's test it, let's put corrosion control in and get the people of the city of Flint off of this water. And that's what led to the Flint water crisis was, you know, cutting off our access to clean water. And when you talk about reparations and what people are owed as a result of a wrong that has been done to them, Flint has definitely not gotten what we deserve. Mayor Karen Weaver is still on the job, but as of this moment, Flint still does not have the water justice and racial justice she's been fighting for. Now, I want to switch gears here and talk about something that I really enjoyed, that Jurassic Park sketch I did with Cree Summer. Hello, Whitney. Or should I say, Professor Dow? (laughs) Hello, Reparations Mosquito, and please call me Whitney. So today, we're going to be learning about the history of reparations. Indeed, a difficult yet worthy conversation told within the rich, painful tapestry of America's failure to acknowledge the sin of slavery and the debt owed to its formerly enslaved people and their descendants. Phew-wee! That was exhausting. I quit. Oh, no, you don't, reparations mosquito. No backing out now. Talking about race in America can be exhausting, but trying to get reparations? That's like shake up a snow globe in Boston and expecting it to rain in Cleveland. Sadly, I'm sure that made perfect sense to you, Whitney. (laughs) Whitney, you sounded like Forrest Gump. (laughs) You did a good job, though, man. Erica, you know, I recall that minstrel song you sang. You didn't exactly sound like Aretha, you know. Let's hear a little of that. Racist institutions down on our backs Always the same Boy, you can't vote if you don't pay the tax Oh, no, no, no. Come on now. I don't think we need to hear that again. I mean, yes, we I, I, do. I, brought it, I brought the house down, <laughs> but I don't think we need to hear that again. I was impressed we were able to explore the powerful story of the late... Queen Mother Moore through your Back to the Future interview with her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, me too. And one thing I've learned and been impressed with on this whole journey was how many times it was women, black women, from Sheila Jackson Lee and Robin Ruth Simmons going back to Callie House and to Queen Mother Moore who have been at the forefront of this struggle. Absolutely. Mr. Pop. Welcome, Queen Mother. I'm glad that you're here. Thank you so much. And thank you for blessing us with your story. Thank you. Yes, no, thank you, ma'am. So you've been organizing around the black community for a while. But how did you get to the liberation movement, like your work with the great Marcus Garvey? Well, I was first brought into the Marcus Garvey movement by the fact that he, 
I understood that he was to come and speak to us in Louisiana. And uh, we went to the meeting, and lo and behold, he didn't come. And we heard that the mayor refused to allow him to come. So we were very incensed about it and got a delegation to go see why. Then it was guaranteed that Marcus Garvey would come the next night. The hall was packed with people, and everybody went with ammunition. They had guns. Everybody had guns. Black people with guns. Okay. Blue Steel, Smith & Westerns, uh, German Lugers. Really? And uh, I had two guns with me. <laughs> Y'all showed up and showed out. That's what's up. Amazing. And ammunition. Everybody had a, what you call a suitcase today because we was afraid the police would stop him from coming again, and uh, we wanted to protect him. Wow. And the night that he did come, what happened? 3,500 people was in that hall. So when Garvey came, we applauded very much, and he said, my friends, I want to apologize for not speaking to you last night, but the reason I didn't speak to you is because the mayor permitted himself to be used as a stooge by the police department to prevent me from speaking to you. And when he said that, the police jumped up and said, I'll run you in. And when the police did that, everybody jumped up on the benches. We had benches then and took out their guns straight up. The guns were straight up in the air. Speak, Garvey, speak. And uh, Garvey said, and as I was saying, and he went and repeated himself, and the police filed out of there like little puppy dogs. Every policeman filed out of the hall. No, can't forget that. Speak, Garvey, speak. Oh, I wish I was there. <laughs> that was amazing. You know, Erica, and I'm proud that there were white people who showed up. People like historians Adam Rothman and Ed Baptist. And then, of course, Katrina Brown, a descendant of the largest slaveholding family in America, who bore witness and gave us a much truer story about slavery and its aftermath than we ever learned in school. The DeWolfs, statistically, they brought more Africans on their ships than any other family, north or south. They purchased human beings who had been kidnapped by force and were in a complete and utter state of terror. And it was the most horrific type of circumstance one could possibly imagine. And my ancestors did it over and over and over again. And as my cousin Tom said, they must have known it was evil. How could you not when you were hearing people screaming in the holds below? And yet they somehow told themselves stories to justify that this was okay. And their blood runs in me. A huge fortune was amassed from all of this. That was pretty much squandered by a couple generations later. We wouldn't be able to say we inherited money directly from the slave trade, but it's really obvious to me that we have been in the elite ever since. And it fits the pattern where once you're in the elite, you marry other elite families. So I'm like super aware of the class privilege that has remained, even if we're not at like the uber rich level. And I'm super aware of how much social capital I have. So we've gone to a lot of Ivy League schools, private schools, you know, so I've had just the best education and that's a pattern in the family. So just extremely aware of how much we were set up to succeed. 
we wouldn't be able to say we inherited money directly from the slave trade, but it's really obvious to me that we have been in the elite ever since. One heavy hitter we spoke to more than once on this journey was not only a powerful woman, but was someone we keep getting more and more requests for, your mother, Miss Sammy Alexander. My mom. She's not only lived a lot and seen a lot, she's not shy about telling you about it once you get her started. <laughs> and singing about it. And singing about it. Heaven help us. We also heard from people speaking in opposition to the idea of reparations. (gasps) The dark side. And when I say dark... You mean black. Now, I sort of get it with some white people. They worry about a perceived loss of some kind of status or... Privilege. Right. And as to black reparations opponents... I don't really feel comfortable uh, criticizing them. I don't really know if that's like my place. I don't know. Fair is fair and right or wrong are still. I think you're thinking of Larry Elder. I know he specializes in being kind of a black contrarian. Yeah, like the photo negative of what most black people think. That's Larry. It's been mentioned a couple of times that America has yet to atone for slavery. Well, remember that Lyndon Johnson launched the so-called War on Poverty in 1965. He specifically talked about the need to redress past grievances for blacks. Since then, we've spent over $22 trillion in uh, payments to fight the so-called War on Poverty. It's about personal responsibility. There are think tanks on the left, like the Brookings Institution, and think tanks on the right, like the American Enterprise Institute. And they agree that the way to escape poverty is to do a handful of things. Number one, finish high school. Number two, don't have a kid until you get married. Number three, get a job, keep a job, and don't quit that job until you get another job. And number four, avoid the criminal justice system. And they don't say that this formula only applies to you if you're white. They say this formula applies to anybody. Equal rights and equal results are two very different things. And that's what I think uh, we're getting confused about here. Everybody's entitled to equal rights, but nobody's entitled to equal results. So as we talk about who pays who, uh, this is going to be one of the greatest generational transfers of wealth back and forth because virtually every people on the face of the earth was involved in slavery. So figuring out who owes what is going to be a hell of an achievement. Um, okay, Larry, whatever. But you know, he's not alone. Mm-mm. What about the former NFL and Heisman Trophy winner, Herschel Walker? I'd been a fan, you know, but <laughs> come on. <laughs> Reparation, where would the money come from? Who is black? What percentage of blight must you be to receive reparation? If reparation is a fee or a correction for a terrible sin of slave owners, government, and others, but we punish the non-guilty party, is it not creating division or separation with different races? Reparation, I feel it continues to let us know we're still African-American rather than just American. That's the American way. Oh, 
Ouch, I know. That's cold. <laughs> Step back, Beyonce. Oh. Yeah, okay. But hey, you know, we're talking about Larry and Herschel, two black men and their issues. But in the course of this journey, over and over, I've been struck by white people and their reluctance to engage in this discussion wholeheartedly. Now, I, I was the one who said it, that I know that they have their reasons for white fragility, but I saw some reluctance from you too, Whitney. And I think it kept you at arm's distance and relegated you to being a voyeur, like watching, commenting, but not sacrificing or offering yourself. And by that, I mean personal testimony. That's how I saw it. But it took some time for me to realize that although you work and create powerful projects in this arena, and I'm talking about race, you may have some white fragility and fear too. Because sometimes in our discussions, however unconsciously, I thought you were trying to protect yourself and I was frustrated. So though you may be way further down the line than most other white people, I think your white person's work in progress sign should always be posted. <laughs> well, I think we're all a work in progress and these are hard conversations to have. I'm not surprised you felt that way. No, I, and I get it, Whitney. I, I, I do. But as a black woman, I cannot deflect or avoid this conversation. My people, my family is all in. I'm all in. I'm more exposed and more vulnerable. So that said, so we can be clear, I believe the moral stakes should, must be higher for you. So your investment must be more significant, you know, because y'all got a ways to go. And that's the only way you can catch up. And we need y'all to catch up. But hey, you know, we're on the road together, brother. Okay, so... Let us keep moving. Some of the places we visited along the way made me mad. Durr. Madder than usual, okay? Yeah, I remember. You at the old slave market in New York City, right there on Wall Street. And the slave burial grounds there. You think of slavery, you don't typically think of New York, but there it was, the slave market, right across from the stock exchange. And other places were a mixture of excitement and frustration, like in D.C. Oh, boy. Makes me stop and think about the full name, Washington, D.C. I mean, to bring it home. Its name as a capital city is unique in all the world. Our capital, the capital of the land of the free, is named after a big-time slave owner. A slave owner who is relentless in his pursuit of one of his former captives, Ona Judge. Someone you played in the movie, Erica. George Washington, The Forging of a Nation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, I did play Oni. Mm -hmm. The ad Washington put in the paper asking for her to be captured and brought back to him said she was delicately formed, delicately formed. Wow. Now this was the son of freedom who signed into law the Fugitive Slave Act. You know, we were also in Washington for the debate of H.R. 40. And it's just a resolution to study reparations. But the pushback against it, you'd think it was to put fluoride in the water or something. <laughs> fluoride, that's good. I mean, but that was a trip. And in a lot of epic journeys, we find ourselves coming full circle. And that means coming home. Going to visit your father's grave was kind of a home going. It was, but kind of a lonely one. That sad, remote little piece of ground was a sort of karmic reminder of his failure to live up to greater expectations. For my dad, it was to God. And yet, he's not bound to a piece of dirt. He, let's hope, we all are saved by amazing grace. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to say if there was any there there. So maybe home is inside of us. 
My father's barely marked grave seems like a small thing in the world. But his black American dreams for what America could be, they have their home in me. You know, we saw another version of home, kind of a starting place that you find yourself returning to on our visit to the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana. Uh-huh. And it's just a coincidence that it's your name, right? Yes, Erica, it's just a coincidence. But the Whitney Plantation is unique as a historical place in that, unlike other slave plantations you can visit in the Old South, this one tells its story from the point of view of the enslaved Africans who lived and worked and died there. That was new. That was the gift that keeps giving. And we met a beautiful mix of people of all colors, even a Native American couple from the Dakota tribe. And what they all had in common was that they were looking for a greater understanding of slavery to heal and fortify their own lives. Like you and me, Whitney. Kachina Camp, I am from Prairie Island, Minnesota. It's a Dakota community in Minnesota. They destroyed us, you know, our language, our culture, you know, we're still fighting that today, bringing our language back. And my husband's half Native and half Black, so his struggle trying to learn and he'll tell you he's not Black enough for Black people, he's not Indian enough for Indian people, so he's always, you know, and for our kids, because some of our kids look one way, some of our kids, like, it's half and half, so their struggles are different. So, you know, some of them, I'm just Black, I'm just Indian, they don't. Like, it's hard for them to identify with either or, because it's, you know, we're so colonized, you can't be both. But, you know, we talk about that flag, and I said, it doesn't mean anything to me. I, you know, I respect veterans, but that flag, and we don't stand, we sit, and we have to fight. When people, when we go to games and we have to fight with people and have arguments and like tell them our point of view. Like, no, I don't respect this flag. I just, and I teach my kids that too. My name is Samuel Wells from uh, Prairie Island, Minnesota. My father is from Camden, Alabama. And um, he told me stories when he was a kid of how they was treated back then. This is uh, in the fifties. His daddy was a slave. My grandfather was a slave. And his name was Frank. And um, my grandfather couldn't read or write, but he was a great builder. And he built houses and churches and stuff like that. So for me to come here and see this, it's just, um, it gives me a greater appreciation for my father and what he's been through. Because uh, he's he's heard while he was back there at home in Camden, he, he he could hear in the distance of things happening. He told me a story where he remembered uh, a man was accused of something that he didn't do. And so he ran and uh, my dad could hear the hounds chasing him and the men's chasing him. This man ran up a tree and the hounds found him and he refused to come down. So what they did was they set the tree on fire so he was doomed. He's either going to burn up a tree or jump down to these dogs. And uh, my dad told me that he could hear the man running and screaming. He could hear the commotion of him screaming in a tree while it was on fire. You know, and for me to think about that, no, excuse me. <laughs> you know, the things my dad went through. The things he's seen, and he survived this. We are not that far from this tragedy. And to come here 
and to feel these people's soul because I wonder whose soul is still trapped out here. The kids to the grandparents. How do we free their soul? If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. So the way this is laid out, they put a map, and they want us to experience a certain way. And it says Whitney Plantation, and there's a map key, and there's the Wall of Honor, the big house, the plantation store, the kitchen, the overseer's house, the blacksmith's shop, jail, the slave quarters, sugar kettles, German Coast Uprising Memorial, artwork, Field of Angels, Alley's Gwendolyn, Midlow Hall, and Antioch Baptist Church. That's how it goes. So we heard some music playing and some drumming, and we're going to go inside the church. singing a song called Oh Angel or Slow Down Your Chariot. We were singing that song because it just reminded us of home. So we just wanted to pay tribute to our ancestors here. And we wanted to sing something that we knew that would give them joy. This time means everything. This is another turning point in our history, in our lives, and thank God we're here to see it. It's 2021, and we're still fighting for freedom. We're still fighting for equal rights, and we come here to this plantation to see where there wasn't any, and we're looking for reparations. This is why we ask for reparations, because it's all of this free labor that made this, these beautiful grounds. So this means everything to us, this turning point, and we have to keep fighting. Thank you for blessing us today. 
We appreciate your time. Ready to go? Yeah. Okay. All right, here we are, back on the trail. You know, it's a pleasant day today. So it almost looks like something that's out of um, a Sundance catalog. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Like, it looks yeah. quaint. But there's no doubt that if you had to spend your life every waking hour slaving for white people all day, having kids being sold off, and then getting paid nothing for it, and then maybe having a piece, piece of cornbread and some greens. For hundreds of years, I really believe that America has held a pay. Oh, don't you think it's already paying? No. But how is it paying, in your opinion? This is what I, you know, I, I've said this so many times that, you know, you get, you get annoyed with me, but I feel like white people are like myself are trying to imagine a future and can't really imagine what that future looks like where we actually embrace this past and understand it so it's it's really confusing i'm trying to be like imagine a positive future and it's that's what i'm saying so then why don't you imagine the future that you won't say what's the future that's built do, into do, do you actually you want to you know what i really think the future i don't think that there's actually going to be a reconciliation i don't think that there's actually going to be reparations and i don't think that that there's actually going to be some sort of unity i don't i don't think that america is really built to grapple with it, like the really hard problems like that so i don't know what that means do i think there's gonna be bloodshed i don't know i feel like if there hasn't been already but there has been already. But not, you're talking about it on a scale. Yes, is there going to be some? There's always going to be some. There's lots of bloodshed in America, but is there going to be, you're talking about like on a massive scale. Well, now people massively have guns. But, One thing that your people have done is they've armed everybody. Yeah, but there's been, I mean, the thing is, is that I think that the thing you have to be like cognizant of is that's actually, if you've read the Turner Diaries or any white supremacists, look, that's what they're counting on. They're counting white supremacists. Their belief system is that they're praying for a race war because they believe they can win a race war. So when you talk about black people rising up, that's what white supremacists' greatest dream is that black people rise up because they believe that they have the weapons and they have the government on their side and that that will actually put a final end to the race war by destroying black people. Personally, I don't think there is going to be a race war. I, when you say, you say you think there's... But I, you think there's going to be something. I think that there already is something. We're seeing black people... Um, so you just think go, it's going to go along more of the same? You've never seen any country in history, including the Greeks or the Romans, go along. They all destroyed themselves. In the long run, like all empires, the U.S. will fall. In the short run... I don't think there's going to be some massive... Upright. I know, but you keep talking about short-term, and I'm not... Now I go, there you go. That there's no nation ever that has held themselves if they do not put the people together. And that's what... You do know what happens to nations that don't come together. They fall. They have always fallen. And it doesn't have to be the outside that eats you. It doesn't have to be Russia or the communists. It's the disease and the cancer that we carry. You know, I had to journey even further to see a version of home. I visited Ghana in 2019 along with my mother, the famous Sammy Alexander. And I saw up close the slave dungeons where captive people waited to be shipped across the sea in the stinking holds of the slave ships. That must have been incredible. It was. 
And I was moved. I was moved in ways I expected and didn't expect. And I learned so much, Whitney, mm. including some of the subtleties of the slavery story. Was the existing institution of slavery in Africa, like the chattel slavery instituted in America by the Atlantic slave trade, or not? Africa, 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 Africa. First and foremost, all of you are welcome to the Cape Coast Castle Dungeon. I have the privilege and the pleasure to be your main guide here to this experience today. When I say Cape Coast Castle Dungeon, I say that on purpose because as all of your information has informed you, this is the Cape Coast Castle. But many of us have also been a part of a movement to try to say it's the Cape Coast Castle Dungeon. Because when we just use the term castle, it kind of suggests some fairy tale images of once upon a time. And they live happily ever after. But we know that these monuments were named historical monuments by UNESCO because of the role they played in the infamous North Atlantic slave trade. But today, we have not come here to feel sorry for ourselves. Today, we have come here to celebrate African resilience. Because when we realize what our ancestors went through and where they were brought to, almost into the bottom of hell, and yet they saw within their spirit, they garnered enough strength within their spirit to dare to defy death and to choose to live so that we can be. The size of our group is even small compared to the hundreds and thousands that were being occupied in these dungeons at the same time. So even if our numbers are 200, imagine that the male dungeon that we're going to house 1,500 minimum. Imagine that we're 200 and the female dungeon that we're visiting will house a minimum of 300 at a time. So even though our numbers will be crowded and it'll be hot and sweaty, remember again the challenges that our ancestors went through when we arrived here and we were incarcerated here. This is the door of no return. This is the door that we thought that we'd never see Africa again. Those of our ancestors who passed through here, they didn't know their destination. Nobody gave them an itinerary. Nobody told them the time it would take to reach where they were going or where they were going or the conditions. Like the dungeons that they left, going through this door was still darkness. There was no tour guide. There was no travel guide. I'm Rabbi Kohen Netanya Halevi. I'm the executive secretary of the Panafest Foundation. We do a biannual festival here in Ghana every two years, bringing artisans and scholars from all over the African world um, to come to put forward an effort of reuniting the African family. My name is Erica Alexander. Yes, how are you? I'm an actress and a producer in the States. Ah. And um, thank you for one thing, you're magnificent. Oh, Just fine. fantastic. Thank you very much. Storyteller and um, spiritual guide. Mm, thank um, you. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Sir? Certainly. Thank you. What do you think about reparations? I think reparations is something that is long overdue. It seems to only be a strange word when it's applied to the African experience. Whenever other, any other people have gone to war, been devastated, had any conflict, the first thing that the international body comes together to talk about is how are we going to restore this nation who has been ravaged by war, by invasion or whatever. Reparations is only a debate when it comes to the African experience. And reparations is often a debate because people always quantify it and money first. But reparations at the root of his word means to 
repair, a serious interruption in the African experience and the continuity of the African experience took place. It took place over centuries by multiple players, by multiple perpetrators, and Africans were victimized, and Africans are more than worthy of having their condition addressed and having the world come together to talk about how is Africa going to be repaired with Africans at the center of that process. Now, when you say the Africans will be at the center of the process, we are here in Ghana, and then we have to have a discussion where so many people brought up that the African country itself and different countries put different tribes and their own people on those boats. Should they have any part in reparations, and what do you feel about that? I do feel that everyone has a part in that. I think the onus is on those who were the benefactors. Africa is truly the victim. And those who cooperated and collaborated were in the minority of the African populations. And because we had a few people that were part of the collaboration, you cannot indict and blame a whole people, you know, uh, who were victimized. There's not a single experience of any African family on the face of this earth that have ever been conquered, ever been infiltrated without the collaboration of some of their own indigenous people. But Africans are the only one blamed for their own horrific experience. So Africans should not be continue to travel down the false line that Africans just saw Africans with a blanket statement. So we we must understand who were the perpetrators, who were the victims, who were the benefactors, and who were those who took the loss. So reparations is a broad subject, and people should be bold enough to discuss it without boundaries. This is not just a black experience or an African experience or an African-American experience. This is a human experience. The whole world benefited off of Africa being ravaged. The whole world must participate in the healing process. Nobody can be outside of the circle of that healing process. We need as many forums as possible, but also segments of society to participate in the debate. We must find ways to organize our forums, our sessions, and our conferences so that it's all inclusive, so people come to an understanding of how to understand each other outside of conflict, but to understand each other in dialogue. That's powerful. And your visit there to learn about slavery does give a whole new meaning to the word home. Isn't that funny? We keep saying home. Home is so important in this discussion. And I keep thinking of Setha and Paul D. and the other formerly enslaved men and women in Toni Morrison's Beloved, who had worked and lived on a plantation called Sweet Home, which he says was neither sweet nor home. I think that idea of home is tied up with the idea of justice. If you can't get justice there, it's not home. Is it? Exactly. Can reparations find a home here in America? Slavery and race was and is our national wound. By providing a kind of closure, will reparations, will this kind of restorative justice truly make this country a home for all? The world the slave made was not her own. Its wealth piled up. The reckoning delayed, 
Her children live here, but they are not home and will not be until accounts are paid. Accounts will be paid at the river, shining river, muddy river. Accounts will be paid at the river, weeping river, Hosanna river. The river of justice runs home to the sea. We its tributaries feel and urge it on, damned sometimes, sometimes fast and free. For generations yet unborn and generations gone. And Whitney, for real, thank you for joining me on this journey. We make a good team, and I couldn't imagine a better companion. I feel the same way, Erica. I couldn't imagine a better person to go looking for home with. You're welcome. A friend of ours, the Analog Society and Master Ace, wrote a song that perfectly sums up our journey. It's a song to take us home. Take us home. Time for debate, man. I wanna go home. My mind's in the state, man. I wanna go home. I'm feeling closed in, and I wanna go roam through the cotton fields yeah. and tobacco plants. Yeah. Got a fire burning in me like a jack o' lantern. Turn and look over your shoulders, sonny. My group is looking at you like you owe the money. Reparations, conversations. Damn, 40 acres takes a lot of patience. Land of the free, home of the brave, blood of the child, soul of the slave. Strange fruit hanging from a poplar. Scream so loud, it's like he's singing in the opera. He wasn't guilty of the crime when they locked him up. Damn shame, he could have been a doctor, bruh. Shoulda, coulda, woulda, but the fact remains. You'll always be a threat when you're black with brains. They'd rather see it on the pavement. This is meant to enslave me. This podcast is produced by Eric Alexander, Ben Arnon, and Whitney Dow. The executive producers are Charlemagne the God and Dolly S. Bishop. The supervising producer is Nicole Childers, and the lead producer is Devin Mavic Robbins. The associate producer is Kevin Pham, with additional research support provided by Niall Blass. This episode was written by Tony Perrier. Original music by DJ DTP. The song you just heard is Home in America by Analog Player Society and Master Ace, produced by Ben Rubin. The single will be released on all platforms on June 18th by Ropadope Records. Reparations, the Big Payback is a production of Color Farm Media, iHeartRadio, and the Black Effect Podcast Network in association with Best Case Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.